One, two, one, two. Let's go. Welcome. Welcome to Max's Minutes, hosted by Max Crowley, bringing you a mix of all things real estate, live from New York City. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Max's Minutes. Today, I have with me a very special guest, fellow Compass agent and the principal of my team, Julia Hogan. Um, you can find more about Julia um, and her team on her Instagram page, the at Julia Hoagland team on Instagram. And I'll also have links in the bio of this podcast to our team page and some more information there. Um, so outside of being the principal of the team, Julia is an incredible broker with over $750 million in sales and many other accolades, including being ranked number 25 of New York City agents by the Wall Street Journal Real Trends. Um, and as well as having her team be ranked number one, two, and three in our office um, between 2013 and 2019. So with that being said, Julia, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, now to kick things off, I was thinking we can talk about things, something not so real estate related, and that is your um, previous career, which from what I understand was in engineering field and then that sort of transitioned into the world of finance. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I studied engineering uh, in undergrad and worked as a control systems engineer for three years for Honeywell and then came to New York City to get my MBA and studied finance and economics and worked for eight years in structured credit. Very nice. Yeah, you find so many, I mean, I've met so many agents that come from previous career. I mean, I'm not, uh, haven't been in the work world for too long, but my, I had a previous career in, in advertising for four years before coming to real estate. Um, how, how much do you think having that previous career, both you know, in engineering and finance, um, had an impact on you know, where you are today and being able to build your, your real estate career? Engineers at our core are problem solvers, and there are plenty of problems to solve in real estate transactions, as you know. And when I was working on Wall Street, I was underwriting marketing and selling financial assets. And real estate at its core is a financial asset. And so as different as those three careers seem, at the end of the day, I just switched assets and added emotion. <laughs> that's, that's a very, very good way of, of, of putting it. Um, and I think one thing that, you know, kind of you touched on in, with real estate kind of being that asset and you know, one approach that really your, your clients love and something that I really enjoy about being part of your team is your analytical approach that you take to, to the business. You know, some people come in and they have a design background or they, you know, have an architecture background, whatever, whatever it may be, and the, that analytical approach is you know, just as important as those other two. Right? Can you touch on why that analytical approach is so important and how you kind of took that from your sort of finance background into real estate? It's really important to think about investments with both the way in and the way out in mind. We hope that we will have relationships with our clients that transcend time and transactions. And so I always like to think about the purchase of an asset with the lens of selling the asset eventually because if you never sell the asset it doesn't matter <laughs> uh, what the value is but assuming that you will sell that asset at some point you want to make sure that you got in at the right price so that you can justify the the uh, purchase and of course we can't control what the market in the future is going to be but at least we can take comfort in the fact that we got a fair or better hopefully value uh, on the way in so that we can feel good about it when we go to sell 
Right. And so it's not just, you know, what I'm getting this, you know, apartment for now, but that exit strategy, which is just as important. And it doesn't matter if you're holding on to the apartment for three years or, or, or 30 years that, you know, who knows where the market will be by then, but it's important to keep that in mind. Absolutely. In terms of when you're buying. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Interesting. And so on that side of, you know, investing in that analytical approach, um, one thing that you do every year, and from my understanding you've done it for about 11 years now, is you fly over to Hong Kong and you give a presentation on investing in Manhattan. Um, Manhattan, uh, you know, real estate. Can you tell us a little bit about that, you know, how that all kind of came about and where it's, how it sort of developed over those 11 years now? Sure. I have a client who has become a friend, a good friend of my husband and I, who got transferred to Hong Kong with Ernst & Young. And he knew that I had a lot of contacts from my previous career in finance in Hong Kong, which is another financial hub. And he made the suggestion that, why don't I come over and talk to people there, uh, since I had those contacts. And I said yes, and uh, just kind of dove in. The first year, I researched all of the commercial and residential brokers, uh, and every single one of them took my call in my meeting, which was exciting. Uh, So people are interested in, in real estate across the world when we're in real estate. And that, along with the NYU connections that I had, and also my contacts that I had developed in finance, filled my calendar. Yeah. Uh, from morning until night, I was completely exhausted because, of course, when Hong Kong goes to sleep, New York wake up, right. wakes up, and my team was smaller then. And so the next year, I decided that it would be much more efficient since a lot of these conversations were very much overlapping about the exact same subject to host a presentation and have 30 to 50 people in the room uh, to explain the ins and outs of New York City real estate. And I've been doing that for 10 years. That's incredible. Because I feel like there's so much, I mean, to your point of Hong Kong being other sort of financial capital of the world, there are so many people that want to diversify their portfolio and invest in attractive areas like Manhattan, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's they want to buy for a child that's going to go to college over here or just purely to, to rent out. Um, so that's a very interesting approach and, and very creative of, of you in sort of starting that whole presentation. Thank you. Um, so I guess on the note of being an investor and we'll, we'll kind of pretend that I'm sitting in this Hong Kong uh, presentation. And I know nothing about investing in real estate, but I have a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I was thinking I could ask you a couple, you know, sort of investing 101 questions. Uh, of course. So to start things off, you know, there's two types, or, or there's many types of real estate in New York, but two of the more popular ones are condos and co-ops. There's a big difference between the two. Can you explain what that is and what makes one more attractive than the other in terms of an investment? Sure. Uh, so co-ops are really good investments for primary residents. And I am a primary resident in my co-op that I own. The reason that we bought it is because you get more for your money in a co-op. And part of that is supply and demand. Uh, there's, there are more co-ops. 60% of the housing stock is co-op. And so there's more of them. And the greater the supply, uh, the lower the valuation. So we like that about it. Also, the co-ops tend to have lower monthlies, and it's always nice to pay less every month for your maintenance, Um, so that's nice. Um, And co-ops have restrictions on use, and you can't buy a co-op and rent it right away. And so as a 
primary resident, you're not competing with investors because investors is not an appropriate uh, asset for an investor to buy. Um, the downside to co-ops, and it's actually kind of a, a downside and an upside, is that co-ops are entities upon themselves. The building itself is a corporation, and that building therefore can leverage itself. And you can take out a mortgage on a co-op, and that's helpful if you're funding uh, projects because you don't have to pay for them all at once. You can pay for them over time, just similarly to when you get a mortgage to pay for an apartment over time. The downside to that is that as a purchaser in the shares of a co-op, you're buying into the assets and the liability of the corporation. And so you have to be very uh, diligent about reviewing financials to make sure that there is uh, uh, smart financial management going on at the core of the building's level. Hmm. And so, so in a sense, with these co-ops, it's you're sort of buying into a share almost of, of, of stock within it. You're not you're not owning the actual physical bones of your of your apartment. You're just sort of buying that share within sort of the entity, as, as, as you mentioned. Whereas with a condo, it's kind of the the opposite. You're actually owning the, that real physical apartment. Yes, I mean they're both ownership structures. Um, with a co-op, you own shares that are that give you the right to use the space that the shares are allocated for. Whereas in a co in a condo, you own the actual tax lot that is that you know, apartment with four walls. Uh, another benefit to buying co-ops, I should mention, are the closing costs. Because when yes. you get a mortgage on a property, it's a mortgage to buy real property. And so you get a mortgage when you're buying a condo because it is real property. Because co-ops, you're buying shares that give you the right to use real property, but you're really just buying the shares. The loan that you get, while it performs very similarly to a mortgage in a lot of ways, is not technically a mortgage. And so you don't have to pay the mortgage reporting tax, which is 2% uh, of the value of yes. the mortgage, which is a healthy chunk of change at New York City prices. Yes, that, that, that definitely can be, especially <laughs> in New York. Um, so being a, a investor sitting in, in your Hong Kong presentation, I would probably want to lean more towards the route of a condo if it was something where I want to buy it and immediately just, you know, start renting it out to, to somebody. Okay. Yeah, and condos have other uh, benefits. Uh, they're 40% of the housing stock in New York City that's for sale is condo. And so if you look at uh, supply and demand, which Macroeconomics 101 tells us dictates value, uh, you're buying into a lower supplied asset. And so the value is held uh, a little bit more firmly in that sense, uh, just because there are less of them. Okay. Um, all right, so one of the other terms that I'm, I'm seeing as, as being an investor is something called a 1031 exchange. Um, can you explain what that is, please? <laughs> yes, Section 1031 of the U.S. Tax Code enables one to defer capital gains on sales of commercial real estate indefinitely into the future as long as you invest the proceeds of that sale into another commercial real estate asset within a certain amount of time. And that can be in New York or it can be anywhere in the U.S. Okay, so if, if, you know, if I just bought a, you know, a, a two-bedroom apartment for, for $2 million, when I go to sell it, those sale proceeds, as long as I reinvest those in something sort of at that sale price or, or greater, I can sort of defer those capital gain taxes. Exactly. Right. And again, we are not tax professionals here on the, uh, <laughs> on the end of this recording, but <laughs> it's just one of these terms that you come across in the world of investing in real estate. Yes. Um, another thing that you, know, you, you talk about and, you know, with, with the team and uh, definitely a lot in your presentation is the absorption rate. Um, 
Can you explain what, the, what that, that means? Yes, the absorption rate is the number of months it would take at the last six months average rate of sales to absorb all of the current inventory in a specific market or submarket. Okay, so um, I was reading how Midtown West has a lot of you know developments, but they're not being sold. A lot of them are still vacant. Um, that would be an example of a, a nook of the city that has a higher absorption rate in the sense that there's a lot of inventory and sort of sort of take a long time for that inventory to in a sense sell. Correct. So okay. there are, when I last looked, uh, over 30 months worth of three-bedroom condominium wow. inventory in the Midtown West market. And what that means is that buyers have the upper hand because okay. uh, developers or sellers have a lot of competition for their attention and therefore buyers have leverage. Okay, so I'm, 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 I'm leaning towards Midtown West as being an investment here. <laughs> um, and, and one thing I've, I've heard tossed around is there are pre-war and post-war buildings and they seem pretty straightforward. Pre-war is pre-war, right? <laughs> Correct. Probably the same with post-war is post-war. Uh -huh. uh, is there one that's sort of better in terms of uh, an investment? If, if I was looking at it, is there not really that much of a difference? My opinion is that pre-war condos are the very best investments in the entire city of Manhattan for several reasons. One is the, going back to supply and demand, microeconomics 101, most pre-war buildings are co-ops. And so if you find a pre-war condo, it's a rare asset and rare assets uh, hold value better. City taxing system works, which could be an entire other podcast in itself, yeah. um, puts taxes on older buildings at less money uh, than the newer buildings. So you have lower monthlies, which helps investment because sure. we're you know all about yield. Um, and my personal opinion, and this is purely you know aesthetic and, and up to personal determination, but is that uh, pre-war just has character that right. post-war doesn't have, right. and they're not building any more pre-war buildings, and so it's just you get to have something that not very many other people have. They definitely designed them in a way that sort of can't be replicated in, in today's world. It's hard, it's yeah. It's hard. Um, all right, well, thank you. That was very helpful. Absolutely. Um, so. You know, unfortunately, right now we are recording this podcast in the midst of the terrible COVID global pandemic, which has, you know, impacted people's lives in so many ways, of course, from a health perspective, and, you know, that being the most important. Um, and, you know, Manhattan is sort of the center of this, this pandemic. And for those that are listening, we are currently on, on Julia's rooftop in, in the East Village, recording this at a social distance. Um, try to get creative with it so if you hear some elements in the background that's that but um but no in all seriousness we're, we're recording during this time and you know the, the pandemic has really impacted the city i mean the whole world but especially new york how do you think that this pandemic will impact you know new york just not just right now in terms of real estate perspective but you know looking forward in, in, into the future it is indeed the question that we try and answer every day in this business and it's hard to know because this is a unique event we've never had uh, in our lifetimes a pandemic that's affecting the whole world like this is uh, we do have previous shocks to the system that we can look to for at least some guidance on, on what we might be able to expect the most recent two were of course the financial crisis of 2008 and the uh, terrorist attacks of 9-11. So what happened after both of those events, uh, after the initial shock wore off 
when the market opened back up, there was a flurry of activity because we learned that the need and desire for real estate does not stop accruing, it just stops executing. And so we expect that that's going to happen after the market opens back up in the coming weeks. And in terms of how we went into COVID, I think it's also important to to note because, you know, in on 9-11, we were in the middle of a dot-com recession. And so we were already under financial pressure there. And with 908, of course, was caused by fundamental issues in the financial and housing markets themselves. So clearly a, a different issue there than we are in today. When we went into COVID, the New York City real estate market was actually starting to strengthen after two, you know, around two years of, of softness. Uh, we had record high stock market. We had, we have still record low interest rates. So affordability is great. Low unemployment. Um, you know, economically we're looking pretty strong. So the other thing I'll mention, you know, 908, we didn't know what was going to fix it. Uh, we threw a bunch of mud at the wall in terms of stimulus and TARP and all kinds of things uh, until something worked, which ended up being mark-to-market accounting. Um, with COVID, we know it's going to fix this. Right. It's a vaccine. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's going to happen sooner or later. So uh, the short-term impact is hard to argue against that you know, we're going to have some sort of an impact just because of the economic decimation that's happened. I have hope that it's going to be short-term indeed, and you know, as always, I remain bullish on Manhattan over the long term, and we've proven ourselves. I mean, we had another global pandemic. We had two world wars. We've had, as just mentioned, a terrorist attack and another massive tax change in the 80s and um, you know, financial crisis. And you know, the obituary of New York City has been written many times, <laughs> yes. and here we are still standing today, so I'm optimistic about that. Yes, and as am I, and I think the bottom line is, you know, New York is is resilient, and it sort of bounces back with, with passion, and, and you know, always sort of finds a way to to come back in, in many strides, which is which is the key. And you know, there's just so much activity. I mean, on the west side of Manhattan, they're building its own, its own little version of Silicon Valley to an extent. I mean, there's just so much talent and you know, passion to the city, which is really going to be. You know, makes it attractive, and you know it'll it will bounce back. Yes. Yes. yes, and TikTok, I understand, just signed a fairly substantial lease in that Silicon Alley area. I mean, literally within the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so, two, like something like two hundred thousand square feet or yeah, something. Exactly. And that's 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 definitely a big chunk of space to be to be uh, signing during this time, and, and a sign of optimism, which yes. is which is which is good. Um, okay, so kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, you've been a New Yorker for a little over 27 years now, um, so having that local perspective, I was figuring I could just kind of get a, an insider scoop a little bit, if you will. So, in terms of favorite neighborhood, I mean, I, I already kind of know the answer to this, but for those of that that don't know Julia, what is your, your favorite neighborhood in the city? East Village, all the way. All the way, and uh, where we are standing, where Julia lives, it's. It's a beautiful place to be. Tompkins Square Park is in full bloom, so it's definitely a very great place, nook of the city. Um, favorite restaurant? You know, this you're coming out of the pandemic. What's what's one place you're you're excited to go go eat at? Del Frisco's. Del Frisco's, awesome. That's 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 a fantastic answer. Um, as we emerge into summer, do you have a favorite sort of summer day 
hang out, escape from the apartment, where, where are you headed to? I love Columbus Park down in Chinatown, where all the Mahjong players are. It's uh, such a cool slice of a completely different culture within walking distance. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you wouldn't know it exists. You could just totally walk past it unless you knew about it, but it's, to your point, I mean, it's such a unique little place with a lot of culture, so. Okay, great answer. Um, on a real estate front, do you have a, a favorite building? It could be residential, commercial, one you've, you've sold in. I love the clock tower in Madison Square Park. Yes. It's just so regal and so like pre-war and so unique and yeah, it's it's my favorite. And I think from your rooftop, we're like getting a little bit of the glimpses of- We can see it, uh, yeah. yeah of, of the crowd <laughs> of the building there. Yep, okay, that's, that's great. Um, you're heading to a showing, subway or taxi? Subway. Subway. Uh, depending on how much time I have. Depending on how much time, right, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, um, pre-war or post-war? Pre-war. Pre-war, okay. Um, you get to choose townhouse or penthouse? Penthouse. Penthouse, okay. And, and it's not, is it because the views, is it what, do you have any penthouses that were your particular favorite or do you just like the quiet and being on top there. I love penthouses because there's no one above me and I like um, having an outdoor space that usually comes with penthouses. So yes. they don't need to be high up. They yeah. can be, uh, you know, some of my favorite penthouses are in Soho in the, you know, six story buildings. Yeah. And I mean, uh, to the south of us, we can see 56 Leonard, which I know they have quite the impressive uh, penthouse <laughs> views. Penthouses yes, there, exactly. Yes. Um, all right, well, you know, Julie, to kind of wrap things up, I always like to end each episode with um, a little piece of advice that, you know, listeners can kind of take away with them. So, um, you know, you've you kind of switched careers, you've been in real estate and had a lot of success. If you were looking back and maybe your younger self giving, starting off in real estate and giving, you know, yourself advice or someone that approached you and wanted to get into real estate, what what piece of advice would, would, would you give them? As someone who started on my own with really no uh, information or education, I recommend joining a team. And it's important to find a team that shares your values and your style because, you know, everyone is different and approaches it in a different way. I had two careers that I, I, I liked aspects of but I was never really passionate about and it's, um, it's important to find the right team because you know then you uh, uh, connect with your authentic self yes. and you know sales yeah, the key to sales is authenticity I mean it's really um, hard to get someone to spend five dollars on something I don't really want much less five million yes and so if you're if you're really authentic about your approach and um, and it's it's you then it, it really is going to help you in the in the business and I guess the last thing I would say is be very aware of how much you love the business because I mean this business like many will eat your heart out yeah. <laughs> if it's uh, if it's not really what you're connecting with right. and so it's important to, to be honest and if it's connecting with you then it's gonna be the best time that you're gonna have in your life I love what I do uh, but if it's not that's okay too yes. um, and so yeah just be very aware of, of where you are and who you are and uh, find people to identify with and associate with that share those values no I, I can I think that's great, and I think, you know, to your point of joining a team, I mean, I, I started out in real estate thinking I could, you know, try it on my own, and it's, I was spinning in circles, and, you know, joining your team has, has been incredible. It's kind of like a little MBA course into itself, and so I, I, I can totally vouch for the element of, of joining a team, because it's, 
you know, it's great not just collaborating, but also learning from the other people around you and, you know, their experiences. So that's, that's a great answer. But, um, and but no, fun. yes, and having fun, exactly. <laughs> um, Julia, thank you so much for, for joining me. And I'll pleasure. put a lot of the links of things we've talked about and, um, you know, ways you can learn more about Julia and her team in the, in the bio of this podcast. And uh, Julia, thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, Max again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really hope you liked it. A couple quick things though before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. My goal here is to get you guys interested in real estate, engaged, and also teach you a little bit, maybe something that you didn't know. So please subscribe, share, send it to colleagues, friends, family, whoever. My goal is to deliver at least one episode a month, hopefully more. Um, So your support is much appreciated here. Number two, if you want to receive the newsletter that I do each month, Max's Minute, please subscribe. I have the link in the bottom of the the bio, or you can email me at maxwell.crowley at compass.com. I blast out the newsletter at the first of every month. It has a little bit about real estate, some interesting facts, you know, whether it's New York based, globally. I'll always feature a couple listings from across the country from fellow Compass agents. And then I also include a little contemplation, you know, little interesting facts that I've come across during my time in real estate, things that might be able to help you. So if you're interested and you want to get that, please reach out. Thank you guys again, and I'll see you next time.